0: Welcome to Episode 91 of the Get Cyber Resilient Show. I'm Dan McDermott and I'll be your host for today. This week is our Behind the News episode and I'm joined by our resident cybersecurity expert, Garrett O'Hara. Today, we'll be looking behind the government's announcement to increase the Australian Defence Force by 18,500 people with a focus on cyber personnel and new submarine capabilities. We'll look into the recent announcement by Google to buy Mandiant, We'll dive into the deep fake of the Ukraine President Zelensky apparently capitulating to Russian demands, and we'll end with a wrap of the latest breaches to make the headlines. Gar, let's begin with a review of the government's announcement to increase the Australian Defence Force by 30% at a cost of $38 billion. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so it sounds like big numbers. I suppose they are big numbers, right? Uh, you know, nearly 20,000 people um, and, a, and a pretty decent chunk of change um the the sort of target date is 2040 though so I was thinking about that a little bit this morning and you know what does that actually mean that's nearly 20 years away and I know military stuff tends to be and defense stuff tends to be much longer term you know it's not like buying a, a going to office works and buying some antivirus right it's it's huge big stuff that takes a long time to do um that that was the thing that kind of stood out to me you know I think you and I have had this conversation many times actually when we see these big announcements is that when you break down the kind of annual annual costs and the timelines, it becomes much less big numbers. You know, those numbers are, are not as maybe striking as they initially seem. I think it's important. I think it's a good thing. Um, I would be curious to see what the kind of split will be if you saw a pie chart of where those personnel are going to be working and what their functions will be and what kind of crossover there will be with the cyber to the to the folks who are kind of working on the, the um, submarine capabilities. Um, and I think the reason why 2040 becomes important there is, we've talked about this in the show quite a lot, is how warfare is changing. And sure, we probably won't ever get away from you know boots in the ground and, and airplanes and submarines and, and whatnot. But what will be the shift over time between the sort of cyber personnel and the, air quotes, pure military people? And that'll be kind of interesting to see as, as we go along. And. I I suspect there's two things that are playing into this, right? The election's not too far away. And um, the other big thing is obviously, you know, the the catalyst of Ukraine and what's happening there. Because I think certainly in in private, uh, the private sector, you know, you've got that phrase, never let a breach go to to waste. And I suspect (laughs) our politicians will not let a war go to waste and and use that as a way to get funding for projects like this.
0: Uh, Definitely. And I think uh, you, you just raised so many interesting points there. I definitely think the, the the notion between like how much is going into cyber and submarines like the fact that both of those are mentioned in the same announcement seems a little strange as as to well exactly what's the detail there and and, and how much is going to cyber i think as you say the the, the timeframes as well the difference between a, a submarine project of 20 years versus a cyber threat of today Is very different as well, right? And so, therefore, you know, the response in terms of, you know, that long term and that does need to be there, but there needs to be something now um, because, you know, this isn't going away. This is here and present and real for many people right now. Um, The ACSC, you know, have put out alerts around, you know, be on heightened alert regarding scams and that regarding attacks um all filtering out of you know the conflict and the cyber conflict that started in the ukraine so um it's top of mind and and here and present for people right now so i think we also need a response that is uh you know is maybe a little bit more immediate as well for uh and and like you say dive into into making sure that of the 38 billion which is a you know whopping big number right in mean, in anyone's language um you know that cyber is getting its fair share of that as well
1: yeah i mean and to your point cyber feels more immediate that's the mm. you know i think you're you're absolutely spot on um in terms of that because we're already feeling and seeing the effects of that stuff. And yes, all the, the sort of legislation that we're trying to get through to to protect critical national infrastructure and, you know, even the collaboration with private and, and government sector to do a better job of cyber, but the threat is very real and it's right now and it's happening. And, um, you know, the tinfoil howdy, but like the cyber warfare is ongoing constantly. We know that and we saw the announcement from the PM. So this isn't a... Uh, you know, defensive capability like submarines would mm. be for a future threat. This stuff is happening today, right now. So, um, and, and Dr. Uh, Dr. Catherine Ball, right, she talked about this in the Connect event where we're already behind the the, the numbers that we need to do a good job of cybersecurity and cyber resilience nationally. Um, and that conversation, like, sure, it's in play and it's started, but it's huge um, because whatever about um you know, this this sort of investment in cyber personnel and, and the ADF, you're also competing with private enterprise and all of the huge amount of money that slashes around uh, in that environment. And, you know, we, we already have issues where many organizations can't get the cybersecurity personnel they need anyway. And now you've got governments that traditionally, uh, unfortunately, pay a little bit less than the private sector do. So how do you get the talent to go over there? Um, that's, that's the other big question I would have. It's important. Like we def- we definitely needed, I don't think there would be many arguments about that. Um, but it's the reality of, you know, how do you execute on this and how do you actually get good quality personnel in the right ratios as soon as possible? And I think that's a
0: pretty big challenge. Uh, I think if you hit the nail on the head there, this this will put a spotlight on the skills shortage. Right. Um, We know it's a real thing. Um, It's felt across the industry already. Um, If there is then this big draw um, of expertise on people from the government to actually be able to implement programs like this, um, it's only Going to make a tighter, you know, squeeze in the market, Um, and again, like, does that mean, you know, how does the government actually compete in that um, if it's against, you know, you know, scarcity of resource? So, look, I think you know there's a whole range of other programs that need to be in place right like you know from a skills development perspective to actually be able to create that pipeline of people to actually you know feed into these programs to be successful as well so yeah it's great that to have the intention um but we actually need we need the folks to be able to deliver upon it as well and, and I would say there's something about intrinsic skills within the governments
1: versus outsourcing those, you know, those mm. functions to third parties, where you know as taxpayers we end up paying five times as much because we don't have the, say we, the you know the mm. government cyber departments and the ADF don't have the intrinsic skills. So you get these enormous contracts that go out to uh, you know private sector because those skills don't exist. So you know we end up ultimately paying way more rather than just paying more for the for the talent to to stay within government. Um, So yeah, interesting to see where this all lands.
0: Indeed. Um, The next story that we'll uh, look into is the major acquisition announced in the industry, that of Mandiant by Google for $5.4 billion. What's the implications for the security industry with one of the big five tech companies making this purchase?
1: Yeah, it was uh, really interesting to see Mandiant um, you know, to be acquired, not actually done deal yet, but um, certainly seems like all signals are going in the right direction. Um, and, and interesting, Microsoft had sort of made a, a play or had a conversation back in February around exactly the same thing and, and sort of walked away. So interesting to see that Google um, have come in and, and you know continue the conversations and it looks like it's potentially something that would now happen. Um, so we're going to spend uh, 5.4 billion and acquiring Mandiant. And it's sort of an interesting one. Google to me is kind of like such an interesting company. You know, we work in cybersecurity and I spend so much of my time each day talking to organizations that are looking at cyber resilience in the private sector and in government. Google is rarely a name that comes up in those conversations. Sure, it does sometimes, but uh, more often, you know, it's some version of Microsoft and then pure play security vendors. But much less commonly, uh, certainly in Australia, you know, potentially different in other regions. Is it Google um, and Google seen as an enterprise play for either productivity, but also um, the security side of, um, you know, an enterprise organization? Um, Mandiant, I think, will be certainly useful at uh, bolstering its its brand in the enterprise space, and certainly from a security perspective, Mandiant has got a great reputation. Um, they're often the organization that's involved in those kind of large, um, global campaigns when there's breaches and mandate will quite often be involved in the, uh, the forensics and the analysis. So they've got a, a good pedigree for, um, you know, it's kind of that, that sort of deep security knowledge. Um, and, and as people would know, you know, far, far, did acquire them and then sort of divested from them. I think it was last year, mm. um, probably should have got those dates before <laughs> we had this conversation, but you know they they've been through the acquisition and, and the the acquisition um before um and what it will do is is certainly bolster google's enterprise play um with an organization and that's the thing that that does security you know they've got beyond core um for zero trust Varus total which everybody knows um, they acquired them about 10 years ago and uh, they got play, plays in in sort of soar technology uh, with simplify and so they do security and they they're definitely involved but um yeah, maybe it's just me, but they, they tend not to be the first thing I think of when I think of security. Um, even though they do lots of, you know, interesting and useful stuff. And certainly is a useful acquisition from them in terms of their reputation from a security perspective at an enterprise level.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and I mentioned at the start that it's you know the big five tech companies. And if you look at you know one of the acronyms is like GAFAM, right? So it's it's Google, Apple. Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft as the sort of the big five juggernauts, um, if you like, at the moment, none of all of them do security, right? And, and, you know, in all various different ways and, you know, and hopefully security by design a lot of the time, right? In terms of what they're actually putting into the market and and their offerings Um, and obviously a lot of things around, you know, data retention and privacy and all of those sort of things that go with the data collection that they have as well. But none of them, you would say, is a pure security company, right? They're not, that's not their, um, I guess, their, their sort of heritage, right? And that, so, it, whereas Mandiant is, Mandiant is a, a mm. pure play security organization. So, it's really interesting to take that, I guess, that play and that heritage and that culture and, and what they bring to the table and bring it into an organization like Google Cloud that, you know, doesn't have that at the core, if you like. Um, it does, you know, it's focused on other things in terms of the way it goes to market. So I think that's going to be really interesting to see how does that play out and what does that look like and what does that mean for the big five going forward? Um, you know, what is their view on security and cyber as a, I guess, a critical component of what do they need to do in order to remain, you know, the juggernauts as we know them today?
1: You've you've got my brain firing lots of different ways there with mentioning the, the big five because I when I think of those brands, they're they're sort of like split personalities in some way, right? The mm. some of them, not all actually, as I think about it. Like Apple when I think of Apple, I don't really think of corporate enterprise presence so much as I would um, Microsoft and then Google to some extent. But you know, unless you're in the creative industry and then yes, there's heaps of uh, Apple stuff around, I suppose. But you know, when I, when I think through those organizations, you know, Apple uses security and privacy as a differentiator against Google. You know, you see the ad, the ads, and the billboards around, sort of pushing their privacy play, and um, you know, the, some of the stuff they're doing to chop the legs out from underneath Facebook. You know, in terms of the the ad revenue and and whatnot. So they're, they they have this fairly strong consumer privacy slash security play. And I know lots of people in the security industry would never use Android because for them, Apple, that's the secure ecosystem and environment. It's well-controlled. Um, but then when you go into a corporate environment and you're walking across an open plan office, when you look at the screens, like if you're going to bet on what you're going to see on there, it's probably going to be uh, you know, Microsoft operating system and probably Microsoft productivity tools mm-hmm. with you know a little bit of Adobe or, or whatever kind of sort of thrown in. Um, and, but to your point, I think... What this is pointing to and and maybe Apple's move in terms of differentiating against Google is how much more in the zeitgeist cybersecurity has become, you know, it's become an importance across the board. Um, That's the conversation is privacy, data protection, data usage. What what does this stuff mean? Um, And, you know, playing then purely into the enterprise space. Google as uh, I don't mean this in a bad way, but like I say, they just tend to show up in the conversations that I'm having much less frequently than Microsoft does. Does that start to change as they build out a portfolio like this and some real, you know, visible expertise? Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Do they become much more of a viable, viable option um, from a security perspective? I mean, that doesn't necessarily point to or, or have the conversation around productivity tools because I think there's an inertia. Let's be honest behind office microsoft office that
0: because everybody uses it everybody uses it and Mm -hmm. it feels a little bit
1: like that sometimes
0: there's no doubting that it looks like a step change though for google to to address some of those concerns right and um and like you said is for cyber and security to be at the heart of what all of these organizations do because when it's not um it will be you know it will be used against them um and then they won't be able to sort of you know everybody is you know, for all the plays that they have in all different market segments, right, they all still want to be very relevant in the enterprise, right, and want to be, you know, a, a player of significance there. Um, and like you say, Google have probably sort of halted their progress on that in the last few years. Like, I think there was a time where it looked as though, you know, Google Docs and all that sort of thing was, you know, on the rise, Um but Microsoft productivity tools seem to have uh, to to be the the way in the next wave that's come and sort of crashed back over them. So um, there's no doubting that. Uh, I think there's definitely big plays afoot here. Um, um, but it definitely shows that you know the big five are needing to up their game in terms of cyber security. And uh, and we'll see what moves come next from this. There, there's an like
1: as you're talking there, one of the things that occurs to me is the overlapping consumer and enterprise and and i mean does that almost become an interesting differentiator when you think about what google does see Uh, because if i if 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 i thought about the world um which i do sometimes dan you know after (laughs) a a strong whiskey (laughs) but you know thinking about um an organization like google like personally i use google docs i don't use OneDrive, but i use um google drive to share things i use gmail as a personal you know email platform um and then when i come to work i tend to use microsoft But I wonder what the, you know, the threat intel you get from seeing the huge amount of, um, you know, phishing attacks, spam, things that are stored on Google Drive. Like, is there something that comes into play there where actually it starts to help them pull away in terms of seeing trends or campaigns that we, we know there's an overlap between sort of personal use and, you know, the corporate enterprise quite often that's the way in and people are using BYOD and, you know, the, you know, the, um, the surveys that uh, your team have run that come, have come back and pointed to how often people are using work devices to do shopping online or to, to jump on personal email addresses. So there's this huge, huge overlap. Um, and I wonder, does that start to to help them see more and therefore do better in terms of that security play in the enterprise?
0: Uh, definitely an interesting space to watch and I think uh, definitely one that will continue to evolve um, and probably move pretty quickly, I think, from here as well and we'll sort of see ongoing responses into this space as well. Yeah, the next story is one that um, uh, we've discussed ne- previously a number of times but around a hypothetical case study, if you like, which has now become real, which is the use of deepfake um, and looking at deepfake of President Zelensky. And taking the whole idea of fake news to a whole new level.
1: Yeah, look, we we knew this was going to happen. Um, I think we're say we're, um, but you know, the world is lucky that this time it was a pretty obvious and and not an amazingly well executed deepfake. But it it sort of points to what we may have in store and what what may be a bigger and bigger problem going forward. Um, you know, you and I talked about this in the last couple of news episodes, how much of a um, a part of this whole thing cyber has become and, you know, information attacks and, um, you know, what would have been called propaganda back in the day mm. is now, you know, social media manipulation. But the outcome is the same thing. You know, we're trying to uh, influence people's mindsets, get morale down, maybe get people moving in the wrong direction because they think um, that, you know, their president has said one thing versus another. Um yeah, look with this, the, the, I don't think it's still understood who created the video, um, but it was reasonably clunky. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it. Um, you know, I definitely am no expert in deep fakes, but I, I could, I could even see, um, you know, clearly there was something not quite right with this, and you know, it was a pretty amateurish kind of approach to, to creating a deep fake. Um, they did get it out on Ukraine Twenty Four, which was interesting. So it actually made it onto the kind of Ukrainian. TV station um, and on the T the news ticker and stuff like that. So you know, it, they got it out there. What was I think important in this case was Ukraine. You know, they they probably knew this was coming, and you know they're they're not you know they're not naive. I would say when it comes to the the cyber aspects to what is happening for their country right now, and they were able to get ahead of that and and you know very early on in the the piece said hey, fakes are going to be a thing. Pay you know pay attention and you know be aware blah 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 it's good was super quick coming out with a, a response saying you know it didn't say it it's not real so i, I think you know in th- this instance they've they've come away okay and no harm uh, really came of it but you could see how easily this could have been a much better executed deep fake um, and maybe done in a way where there was an account takeover so that he wasn't able to come out as quickly to say that it was a deep fake so that's you know that's I think where we need to start thinking about is how do we for really high stakes communications like this how do we start to build in verification of the message a little bit like a Mm -hmm. like a digest um you know when you think about digital communications you can do um you know a, a hash of a message and you can use public key encryption to know that the sender was you know is the sender do we get to the point where there needs to be some version of that when it comes to video or any kind of missive that's coming from a president, you know, there's some way to verify that the message is real and not faked. Um, You know, somebody way smarter than me, I'm sure, is already thinking about that, but it feels like we're probably at a point where, that's starting to come necessary, like almost DNS. You know, like almost what we do with DKIM in email. Cut. We're getting super boring here, but you know, DKIM. You know, that, that sort of message authentication that we use DNS for in the email space is there's something we can do when it comes to video messages when the the stakes are so high that, to verify that the sender is or the the, the speaker is who they say they are.
0: Yeah, so many interesting parts to this. Um, I, I think the first thing is that I think we've all seen bad dubbed movies and that sort of thing, right? And um, there was in Australia, for people of my generation will remember uh, a thing called Monkey, um, and everybody used to laugh at uh, at how That's that the, <laughs> at the At the dubbing and the and the way that the lips would always be out of sync with uh, the words. Um, but um, so if you sort of put that aside, though, I mean, I think there is... So they may not have got that part of it right, you know, in terms of being able to, you know, prove that out and therefore it became a bit obvious. Um, but they did do some pretty sophisticated elements of it, right? Taking over a live feed of a, of a news channel, Um that's that's pretty uh, impressive, if you like, From in terms of what they were getting access to. The fact that it wasn't just, you know, the talking head, but it was the ticker feed at the same time. Um, so there definitely was parts of that that are quite sophisticated, right, and that are uh, getting, you know, that are pretty scary when you sort of think about those outcomes. Um, and it was obviously said by um, Ukraine24 that, you know, this was the work of, in their words, enemy hackers, right? So um, very much putting that on the agenda as well. But your notion of, you know, verification of the person um, as part of the news cycle um, and where that's coming from. Um, is, is fascinating. And there's no doubting that, you know, we've seen things with probably easier things that can be taken over, like Twitter accounts or, Mm. you know, those type of things. And from a social media and it's print, it's printed. So therefore, you don't see the person and, you know, you don't need the whole deep fake capability, right? In order to do it. But this is going to that next level. Um, and adding, once you're adding people and voice and face, you know, it becomes far more believable, right, for for people. And what does that do in terms of that disinformation um, in society? So, yeah, it's it's pretty scary that it's actually got to this point that they, they um, that they got that far. You you've raised actually a very interesting
1: point, which I probably hadn't really thought through. But it's the yeah, like you could take over a Twitter account, but it's text, mm. and while there may be emotion there, it's more informational, but. You know, communication is it's very human at some level and especially when you're talking about laying down arms or attacking or you know the very very emotional things Mm -hmm. that um uh, you know when the stakes are so high that is a very human version of communication right it's a human face and a human voice and micro expressions and all of those things so like the emotion that would lead to action you would assume there's much more power in a video Deepfake, much more power than there would be in a tweet. You know, it's much less evocative at some level. Um, And monkey. So... My my, if there's one tip that I will leave the listeners with today is don't go back and watch Monkey because I have those very fond memories and um yeah, <laughs> when you when you go back it's maybe not the show that you thought it was. Actually, weirdly, I had this conversation over a beer with somebody on Saturday, bizarrely saying exactly that. We both absolutely adore that uh, that show, and then when you go back to it, it's like, oh, hang on, <laughs>
0: maybe maybe not quite as convincing as we thought. <laughs> maybe not quite as funny as we thought either. Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> indeed uh, look I think definitely I think it's like you say that like, I don't think you're going to be you know sort of laying down arms and that via a tweet right so um, mm. so that's you know it, it's using I guess the communication vehicle that they see is most powerful for such a strong message as well so definitely one to watch like we say we sort of have spoken about deep fakes and, and the potential for what that could be used for um, and we're seeing it come to life in front of our very eyes mm. that's for sure Finally, let's wrap up with a quick review of the latest breaches to make the headlines. In what is an unusually quiet reporting time with the media attention obviously focused elsewhere. So we only have one major breach to review today, that of the Russian Cyclops' Blink Botnet assault against Asus routers. What can you tell us about this one, Gar? Yeah, I mean, it's
1: it's it's pretty much uh, that done. Um, yeah, it looks like the... the uh, the nation state that we've been sort of talking about a little bit, uh, maybe behind this one, but it's um yeah, Asus routers where um botnet basically is taking them over. And um the the interesting part of this is that what what may be happening is a ramp up in terms of uh members of the botnet with a view to something happening, you know, down the line a little bit when when it hits a certain capacity. It's already pretty big, but it is growing. Um and some interesting stuff here is that uh when you look at the, the sort of remediation advice, it's basically go buy a new router. Um, re- resetting factory defaults in this case, um, potentially is not gonna be enough. Um, um, it, it's a modal attack, but bas- part of what it can do is kind of overwrite the, call it the operating system part of the router. So that even when you do a factory um, default reset, all you're really doing is losing your configuration, but the actual um, compromised code is still going to be on the device, so I, th- I thought that was kind of like a, um, yeah, that's that's pretty hectic when you get to the point where the 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 advice is basically you know burn the mm. the router um, and go buy a new one. Um, it's yeah, it's probably worth kind of paying attention to that. Not not a million miles away from what we saw with the VPN filter, which is a couple of years ago. Um, if people remember that, but hundreds of thousands of devices, you know, an IoT um is kind of overtaken with that. Um so i you know iot is one of those things we i feel like we we've dropped off the conversation largely um yeah the government brought out the principles last year was it about middle of last year if i had to guess um you know and and i felt like there was maybe some momentum about getting those to be mandatory you know if you're going to buy a device then there's certain things that should be in play like decent passwords um secure communications blah, blah blah like there's a bunch of things that you would expect to be in place Um, And there's no comment, by the way, on Asus They're they're a good brand. Obviously there's nothing here. Any, any brand could have been the the victim here. Um, but you know, when it comes to IoT, like this is the sort of stuff that I think worries a lot of people, you you know, you buy a cheap $20 thing Mm. for your home automation system, and if that gets popped and it becomes part of a botnet, um, then, you know, you're part of the problem. Um. Mm. So yeah, I mean, it points to that. As you say, like you know, relatively quiet from the the sort of breaches and, and attacks round uh, roundup. But um, as you say, I think everyone is kind of looking elsewhere at the moment, and probably will be for a little while.
0: Indeed, uh, I, I think that IoT legislation was a couple of years ago now that well proposed legislation um, and sort of looking at putting those requirements in place. So definitely one that you're right has sort of fallen off the radar a little bit. Mm. Um, and in terms of this, um, we'll include in the show notes a link to the ZDNet article that actually has a list of, um, of, of the firmware that is, uh, compromised. Um, so that if anybody out there, um, you know, has anything in their, in their networks that, uh, might be compromised, they can take a look at that. Um, and as you say, sort of take the remedial action, um, that's been recommended as well. So that wraps up today's episode, Gar. Thank you. Appreciate your insights as always. So who do you have for us as our special guest next week? Yeah, next week we've got uh, Nick Abrahams on, Dan, um, who I think many people
1: uh, will be familiar with. He's, uh, he's certainly um, a, a well-known technologist and uh, a good speaker. Um, had the pleasure to, to speak to Nick about um, his work with boards and, and running sims um, around specifically paying or not paying ransoms. Um, he's got a really good take on this. He's actually built out a, a, a framework. So um, as part of the sim, you can kind of step through various uh, stages with the board. Um, really fascinating conversation and a little bit different from um, the normal tabletop exercises that we would you know, potentially hear about because um, it is aimed very specifically at, uh, at the board level. And then also um, the Web3 conversation, which I think we're going to end up having more and more of. It seems like it's going to be one of those... Uh, those conversations that uh more and more people will be wanting to talk about nick is is certainly somebody who's embedded in that world um, and has some good stuff to say there so yeah it was a fascinating conversation with a, a fascinating person
0: uh, indeed, really looking forward to it. Um, Nick actually has a video called Data Breach a Hero's Journey, if you want to search for that um, and, and do some uh, pre-watching uh, on some of that. But uh, I won't give everything away in the podcast. Um, and certainly uh, he's obviously in the media quite a bit at the moment um, around the metaverse and, and what that means and opportunities and risks and threats in that space as well. So yeah, that would be a, an insightful and fascinating conversation as always. So until next week, if you'd like to continue exploring key topics in cybersecurity, please jump onto GetCyberResilient.com and check out some of the latest articles, including Assessing the True Cost of Ransomware Attacks, a look back at the key insights from Mimecast Connect event, United Against Cybercrime, and don't forget to check out the back catalogue of podcasts with last week's episode featuring the head of cybersecurity and risk at Dulux Group, Sarah Abak. So thanks for listening, and until next time, stay safe.